Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. That was great. Thank you for sharing. Can you open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3? We're going to continue our uh, journey through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. Um, you might be using the Version Bible app. Well, look, I know, I've said before, like, I love the paper Bible, and if you use your paper Bible, then, you know, you're my favourites, that's okay. Just use any Bible, whether it's a smartphone app, paper Bible, whatever it is, if you don't have one, go and get one. Please be reading this for yourselves, because I think it was Linda said a few weeks ago, don't just take it for granted what we say from the front, but get into it for yourself, and that is truly the way to deepen your relationship um, with uh, the Father and with the people around you as well. So Mark chapter 3, um, and on the Version Bible app, and we've got to get into it. Here we go. Um, let me just pray and centre myself as well. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. You're already here and we thank you for your presence. And we invite you, um, maybe we just submit ourselves to you, Lord. That we would be in line with what you're doing. That we would be tuned into what you're saying. And the proverb says that the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. We've readied ourselves, we've prepared ourselves, but the victory belongs to you, Lord. Come and do what only you can do. Amen. Has anybody, have you ever called somebody crazy or has anybody ever called you crazy? There's a lot of yeses. Gracious, you all need help. I wasn't expecting, expecting that many yeses. Maybe you haven't been called crazy. Maybe somebody said to you something like, are you out of your mind? Have you ever had that said to you? There was a young voice. Um, maybe as a child and uh, you're up on the carport roof and considering or you follow through with jumping into the neighbour's pool and an adult might ask if you're crazy or out of your mind. Not that I've ever done that, I've just only heard about that happening um, with two children living in Ballarat. Hello to mum and dad watching. Um, <laughs> Maybe you've considered something else. Maybe it's a massive life change that people around you weren't quite ready for, but you feel super ready for it. I remember when uh, Narelle and I got engaged and I was working uh, for the government in South Australia. I say the government, and it sounds more impressive than... I worked in the housing department, which is great, but it's like it's not secret service or something, which I kind of wish it was, but... I got engaged, and talking to my colleagues at the Housing Trust... And some of them were of that attitude, like, are you out of your mind? Because we didn't, like, they hadn't met Narelle. It wasn't because they didn't think much of Narelle. So I'll just clarify that. <laughs> wow. Late save. No, it was because I was getting married to somebody that I hadn't lived with or slept with. And for them, they're like, why would you get married to somebody? I can still see the conversation I had with one guy. He's like, Man, you don't even sleep together. How, like, what if you're incompatible? I'm like... Shut up, dude. I didn't say that to him. I'm not sure what held me back. But just that idea of being out of our mind. Or maybe you want to take your family, sell everything you have, and move to the other side of the world to take part in a school of supernatural ministry. 
some people inside, well, actually, I think more people in the church thought we were crazy. You tell people outside the church, or people from the community that weren't part of the church, wow, that's amazing. What are you doing? What are you learning? And And a lot of people in the church, they're like, well, that's cool. I wish I'd done that, or that's amazing that you would do that. And some people are like, are you out of your mind? Maybe I was. Maybe we were. And some people, the consideration for what constitutes out of your mind or why you might be out of your mind was interesting because some people like, you've got a job or you've got your house or one of them was, but what about the kids? And I'm like, well, yeah, we love them. They're coming too. We're not going to leave them behind for 10 months. But it was all based on other people's perspective about whether or not I slash we were in our right mind based on the decision that was before us. Not necessarily whether or not we were in a healthy mental state. I like to believe that for the majority of my life I've been in a fairly healthy mental state. There's been some periods where that's come into question, but today I'm doing really well. I'm in my right mind. Hallelujah indeed. You don't want to see me when I'm not in my right mind. It's a mess. You can ask Noel about that later on. But in those decisions, making those decisions in those moments when we do something that is outside the ordinary for everybody else, even outside the ordinary for us. Like, I've only done that once where I've taken my family and shifted overseas. I've only done that once. In that moment, I consider, like, completely in my right mind, completely making the right decision. And others are like, oh, I, think you're, I think you're a little bit crazy. And some of it is we're questioning where we're going or what we're doing, the outcomes of this endeavour, why we might actually go through that. Here, I want to read this uh, account. We go through this account, uh, account together of uh, Jesus and the disciples. And you might already know this story. It's uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and following. And to give you a little bit of background, um, just Jesus has some disciples already following him. And then in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, he, uh, he goes up on a mountainside and calls to them those he wanted, and they came to him. He points 12, designating them apostles, which means sent ones, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. All right, So he's got the 12, he's got his posse, and he's given them authority to send them out to preach and to cast out demons. Important that we remember that. And then uh, it lists the 12 uh, in the group that he appoints as the apostles. And then we get to verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. Your Bible might have Beelzebul or Beelzebul. There's a couple of different translations on how you might actually pronounce that. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Really kind of uplifting, positive affirmation there from the scribes. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and the blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. They don't even get to go into the house. They send someone in to speak to Jesus on their behalf. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It's an action-packed little account right there, isn't it? And there's a lot happening. And there's a couple of things that I really want to highlight uh, as we spend some time in this gospel. The cool thing about Mark, Mark is a really clever author. We've talked about this a couple of times. Mark is fast-paced. It's always immediately and then and straight away. It's always on the move and he's always inviting you to consider your response to the story. We hear it. It's not just that we're reading it from the outside, but Mark, the author, invites us to consider our response. So Jesus, even in this short passage, he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So all of us, no matter where we're at, we actually have an opportunity to, to fit into one of those categories. You see that? So Jesus says this, finishes up. This Mark finishes with, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And we have an opportunity to see ourselves, not only in reading this and hearing this, to see ourselves in one of those roles, but to actually receive the invitation to be in family with Jesus Christ. Another thing that Mark is famous for, we've talked about a couple of things that Mark does well, but I don't know if we've talked about this, but he has what is called amongst commentators the Mark and Sandwich. Have we talked about this yet? Have we talked about the Mark and Sandwich? This will change your life forever, I'm sure of it. And yes, it's another food thing, I'm sorry. Well, it's not food, but it's called the Mark and Sandwich. What Mark will do is he'll have a story like this, and I'll highlight it, where he's got the two ends, the start, and this sound really obvious when I say it, the start and the finish, and then a middle. And you're like, yeah, that's a story, Jared. Okay, let me explain. So at the start of this, verse 20 and 21, he goes into a house, and his family hears about what he's doing, and they come to take charge of him. All right, so that's our bottle slice of bread, if you like. And then we've got the rest of the story, which is the scribes, and then Jesus telling his parable and explaining about the kingdom of God and it's not divided. And then, the, and then the scribes' response or how Jesus points out the scribes. And then we've got the response from his family. So, can you see, so that's the top bit of bread. Can you see that? So it's like the family make the slices of bread and then the rest that happens is the meat in the sandwich. You might hear that and think, I'm so bored right now. And I'm sorry, but you can read the Gospel of Mark and you see him using this over and over again. And it's to make a highlight, to draw our attention to what he's trying to highlight. And it's just really clever writing. Mark's a really clever author as he puts this Gospel together. So here's Jesus. He's got his 12, he's appointed the 12 closest disciples as apostles, the ones that he's going to send out in order to impart the kingdom of heaven. Apostles means sent one. It's borrowed from... Um, the Roman world, where they would run their armies through a town, a city, a country, whatever it might be, overtake it, but then they realised they might have conquered the land. They would go back months or years later on, and everybody they'd conquered just went back to their old way of living. 
So they were like, well, this is ridiculous. We're wasting all this effort for nothing. So they would send apostles to live in that place that they conquered to actually recreate the Roman world in that area. Right? So the gospel writers, Jesus used this language to say, all right, I'm going to have apostles that represent the kingdom under the authority of Jesus, represent the kingdom wherever we send them. So it's not just that Jesus came, did some neat stuff here on earth and said, that's fantastic, and then went back to heaven. He came, he revealed the kingdom of heaven and nominated apostles who could represent the kingdom of heaven here on earth to make earth look like heaven. Does that make sense? So he has those 12, he's appointed those 12, and now he goes off to a house, not really sure on the location, and he's doing some teaching, sharing with this group of people um, that have gathered around him, and his family hear about it. His mum and his brothers come after him to say, this guy has lost the plot. Now, we're not sure necessarily if it's because Jesus hasn't eaten, it highlights that they were so packed in they couldn't eat, or that Jesus was just on the go. That he had this group of people, he had a growing following, he had the apostles, his fame, if you like, is starting to grow, his ministry is uh, really starting to take off. So his family come to try and take charge of him. It says, they went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. What is happening for his family there when they look? Here, here is their older brother and their son, Mary's son, stepping into his fulfillment as the identity, as the son of God, and all that that's required of him. And they're looking at it and going, this guy has lost the plot. And we might think, well, that's a bit rude, isn't it? I, I don't know. If you're the younger sibling and you're looking at the firstborn who's calling themselves the Messiah or going about casting out demons, he didn't call himself the Messiah at this point, casting out demons before miracles, starting to gain a following, are you going to look and go, well, that's fantastic? Or are you going to go, oh, the firstborn is at it again, thinking they're eating a bit, trying to save the world, here we go, we better go and rein them in. Hands up if you're a firstborn. Have you ever tried to save the world? All right, have you ever tried to rule the home that you live in? My firstborns are saying, yes, I have. Firstborns, do everybody born after you appreciate it when you do that? No. no? Wow, some strong no's. Now we're hitting some nerves. No, so here's Jesus' brothers. Jesus' ministry is starting to take off and he has a following. Jesus is completely confident. He's not rattled about who he is or what he's here to do. Here's Jesus' brothers and his mum. This is, this is Mary who goes to Jesus. At John, the Gospel of John tells us that at a wedding they run out of wine and Mary says to Jesus, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Mary says, do what you're told. And Jesus takes that as his cue to turn water into wine. So here's Mary, mother of Jesus, says, my boy has lost it. And so they come to take charge of him. Now, keep that in mind. You have the family who are worried, concerned, Jesus has lost the plot. You have Jesus and his growing following and the house so packed that nobody can get in, not even his family. Somehow the scribes from Jerusalem have made it and they get to be a part of this conversation. 
The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, Satan, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons, which just sounds illogical when you read it out loud, doesn't it? So his family think he's out of his mind. The scribes think that he's the devil. Let's go back to Mark 3, chapter, verse 11, and read this. Whenever, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So the family thinks he's crazy. The scribes think he's the devil. And the evil spirits that he's casting out of people are the ones that actually know who he is. And then the, his growing group of followers, the apostles, are all sitting around hanging on every word he says. Now, I don't know about you, but I know which group I want to be a part of. Because I don't want to be an evil spirit, and I don't have an evil spirit in me, but they're right. The problem with the evil spirits is that they didn't actually fully submit to him and acknowledge him as Lord of their lives. And they had an authority that was not Jesus. So the disciples are watching it all and taking it all in. All these people, the scribes, the family, say, Jesus, you are way out of line. You are not in line with our expectations. The family thinks that Jesus isn't doing what he should be doing as a good Jewish boy growing up, doing what his mama told him. The scribes thought he might be some promising rabbi, but now he's casting out demons. Well, surely he must be a demon himself. He has that kind of authority. All in the name of Jesus, you're not doing what we expected of you. This is not what we signed up for. This is not what we expected. It's easier sometimes to label what we don't understand rather than to take some time and grace and mercy like Anna was talking about with the coach program. It's easy to go, well, I don't understand it, therefore I don't want any part of it and I'll just label it with something that means I don't have to get involved rather than actually going, hang on, I don't understand, therefore I'm going to draw closer and find out what's happening here. And this is what the disciples did. They said, wow, this man is amazing. He casts out demons. I hang on every word that he says. He speaks with authority. He speaks with wisdom. What is this? Well, the experts and the family just worried about their own comfort zone in a lot of ways, what was happening for them. And Jesus shares this parable. He asks a couple of questions. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. So through all this, Jesus says, look, the house of Satan is not divided. He's got a plan and he's at work in it. And his time has not yet come. All right? So he acknowledges that. And then, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties a strong man. And then he can rob his house. So Jesus, when, uh, when Jesus got baptised by the Gospel of John, John points at Jesus and says, one stronger than I is coming along. And Jesus is the stronger man. And Jesus comes into the house, the earth, where Satan has authority to bind up the things that Satan has authority over in order to take possession of the world. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like I'm compacting the whole life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus really kind of tightly there. But here Jesus is saying, 
Satan as the strong man needs to be bound up. And by every time I cast out a demon, every time I perform a miracle, every time somebody is healed under my touch, under my word, under my authority, I'm taking back that authority that Satan has in the world. I'm binding the strong man to take back what belongs to God. And so then he goes on, he says, I tell you the truth, all the sins... And blasphemies, oh, hang on, I'm going to back up. It says, then he can rob his house. And you think, hang on a minute, how can Jesus, Jesus is like fully God, fully man, perfect in every way. What, why is he robbing somebody's house? Like Jesus in his wisdom, Jesus in his um, perfection is able to use human uh, illustrations, worldly illustrations to point out what he's doing. He's not necessarily robbing as though he's breaking the law. He's breaking the law of the power of this world, which is Satan's rule and authority. And he says, according to Satan, which you claim I am, by his rules, I'm robbing his house, just to get back what is already God's anyway. And then he goes on, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. So he uses all that. He takes the question from, the suggestion from the scribes who say, you're a devil. He takes that, says, no, because the kingdom of Satan is not divided and a kingdom divided cannot stand. And shifts it to say, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And you know, different people have different answers on this, but my understanding is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you attribute to the Holy Spirit what is Satan's, or you attribute to Satan what is the Holy Spirit's. Anytime you look at something that happens, a miracle, a healing, whatever it might be, and this is what the scribes are doing, they're looking at what Jesus is doing and saying, that is of the devil. And Jesus says, hey, a minute, when you do that, that is the unforgivable sin, because it's the Holy Spirit at work, it's the Father at work, it's the God of all creation at work, not the devil. And that cannot be forgiven you. When we look at something that God is doing on the world, we say, well, that must be of the devil. Because it's outside of our understanding, because it's outside of our, our experience up until that point in time, and the church has done this time and time again. We look at something that we don't understand, we can't kind of, doesn't fit into our box, doesn't fit into our upbringing, doesn't fit into the way that we read scripture and we go, well, that's the devil. We are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But when we look at something and, and it lines up with scripture and we understand it as the nature of God and we attribute it to God at work, when you attribute it to the Holy Spirit, then God gets all the glory. And rather than saying something, well, that's of the devil, or being ignorant and missing out on what God is doing because we don't understand it because we're scared of it, we actually enter into what God is trying to do in this moment, in this hour. And that's the privilege that we have as the people of God. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love this passage. I have others, but they can wait. Mm -mm -mm. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, excuse me. <coughs> so Paul writes to the church at Corinth to highlight who they are as 
brothers and sisters in Christ and to remind them of the work that they have to do. Um, I'll read it and then we'll go into it. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 12. We're not trying to commend you ourselves. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Verse 13, if we're out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. This is one of the reasons, one of two reasons I use this scripture in this message. When Paul writes to the church and he says, if we are out of our mind, uh, that's the same expression that the scribes use to describe Jesus. No, uh, the family uses to describe Jesus, sorry. When the family says he's out of our mind, it's the same word Paul uses to say, if we're out of our mind, it's for God. Paul says, this, if we're out of our mind, it's for God's glory. It's for God. So be it. If we're in our right mind, well, that's, that works for you. We'll take that too. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who should live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Mm. Verse 16, this, like, if you have your Bible, can you read this? If you don't have your Bible, can you like, write this down? This is really, really important. Anyways, so from now on, we regard no one. Who do we regard? No one. From a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So here's Paul writing to the church and say, we used to look at Christ through a worldly understanding, a worldly perspective. He's a guy, he's a man, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he does some neat stuff. Awesome. Paul's saying we no longer do that because we've seen that Christ died for all and we are all raised through him. So we regard no one from a worldly point of view. It's not, Paul doesn't write and say, so from now on we regard the people that are in the church, from now on we regard the leadership of the church, from now on we regard... The rich and the famous from a worldly point of view. No, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. I'll read on. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. This is good news. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. A bit like we had the apostles that were going out and revealing the kingdom of heaven, making earth look like heaven as part of what we pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer. We are now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. And then it finishes off with this powerful sentence. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you ever thought about that, that we become the righteousness of God? Christ died, and in doing so, we made a way for us to be dead to sin. And so that in him, through him, as we go through the waters of baptism, the old is gone, the new has come. 
Why do we do this? Not only for ourselves, like, I'm, I'm going to heaven. That's locked in. There is no doubt on that. But between now and whenever I go to heaven, praise be to Jesus, I have a ministry of reconciliation. Like we are not saved. You and I, if you have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, it is not just so you can get to heaven. When, I'm, when I receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'm a new creation. My work now is to actually reconcile others to God the Father, which is so cool because that's what Jesus did. We're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So Christ does the initial work of revealing the kingdom of heaven here on earth, of reconciling the world to the Father through his death and his resurrection. And he then puts on us the ministry of reconciliation to actually continue to reconcile more and more people to God the Father. This is fantastic news. Aren't you excited? And you might say, well, what does that look like, Jared? How do I actually be a ministry of reconciliation? One of the ways is, and this isn't a plug, but it's just a fine example, that people get on board with being part of the coach mentoring program and mentor families who don't have a clue about how to send their kids to school, how to feed their kids properly, how to get their kids to bed on time, how to make a clean bed and say, do you know why we're doing this? We're doing this because God loves me and so I'm going to love you. That's how we get to be ministers of reconciliation. And at some point in that relationship, I'm all for showing up to somebody and saying, do you know what? Jesus loves you. It's the best, most exciting, most scary thing you can do. I haven't been punched in the face yet, so we're doing well. But I'm not saying that every relationship works like that. Sometimes we build relationships with people, say, I'm going to show you how to do life in a healthy, God-giving way. And through that, I'm going to show you the love of God. And in doing that, I open up an opportunity for you to be reconciled to God the Father. Isn't it exciting? Two people are excited. That's all right. I'll, just, I'll be excited for all of us. This is what we get to do. Why? Because Christ, who was considered out of his mind, Christ, who was considered a devil, said, I'm going to the cross on your behalf, people, so that you can be reconciled to the Father in heaven, so that I can be reconciled to the Father in heaven. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that we could be reconciled to our Father in heaven through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. I have a really good point about God is a jealous God, the difference between jealousy and envy, but that will have to wait for another time. Can we, can we stand together as the worship team comes up? Listen, God is jealous for you, and you might think, jealous? God can't be jealous. Why is God jealous? God's not envious. Envy is wanting what somebody else has. God is jealous for you because you belong to him, and he doesn't want you, anybody else to have you. Why do you belong to him? Because you're made in his image, because you are a new creation, made in the image of God. And maybe you're sitting here today you're thinking, I... I I don't know what this means. Like, you're talking about being reconciled to God. You're talking about being a follower of Jesus. I don't know what that means. I want to know more. And maybe there's something inside you saying, I need to know more. 
I need, to, I need to know more about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've never, ever said yes to being a follower of Jesus. You haven't received the reconciliation that Jesus paid the full price for you to have. And today is the day that you can say, yes, I want to follow you. So I just want to invite you, if you've never said yes to following Jesus, whatever that might look like, even though you have more questions than answers, and that's completely right, most of us do. And you say, yes, I want to give my life to serving Jesus the rest of my life. I want to receive all that he's paid for on the cross. I want to have this ministry of reconciliation so I can be reconciled to the Father. I just want to invite you, just as we stand here, just to raise your hand. Don't want to make a thing about you. I just want to give glory to God to invite you into that relationship with our Father in heaven. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you. We're just going to sing one more song, How Great the Art, is that right? Beautiful. Um, A timeless hymn about how good God is, because he's good all the time. He's better than you expect. And if you you raise your hand, or if if you want uh, prayer for healing in your body or a miracle in your life, if you just want to encounter Jesus as we sing this song, I just want to invite you to come down the front, um, and one of us will meet with you and we'll pray with you, probably maybe at the end of the song, but at some point we'll just spend this time with you to pray with you, to lead you into his presence that you could receive all that he has to give you because he is that good. His family thought he was crazy. The scribes thought he was devil. He was the devil. The demons knew who he was and the disciples hung on every word. And not once through all of that does Jesus shift from the call on his life to reconcile every single person to our Father in heaven. This is the invitation and the opportunity that we have as his brothers and sisters today.